Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, September 8th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. Earth Raging by Chad Peterson. Why Outlawing Ghost Guns Didn't Stop America's Largest Maker of Ghost Gun Parts by Anjanette Damon. Sheer Zone by Caitlin Rocket. The Upswing Always Comes by Angela K. Evans. Sausage City by John Lendorf. Punch Your Way Into the Party by Nick Hutchinson. Earth Raging. After another attempt at winning Leadville, Boulder's Claire Gallagher continues to build her love of running on her passion for the environment. By Chad Peterson. Before dawn on August 20th, a custom-made double-barrel shotgun fired into the air at the starting line of the Leadville 100, sending more than 700 competitors out into the dark. The race, aptly referred to as the run across the sky, is a 100-mile out-and-back ultramarathon with the elevation ranging from 9,200 to 12,600 feet, with a total elevation gain of 15,744 feet. This year, Leadville was filled with familiar faces, including many past winners. Joining the other 700 at the starting line was Boulder resident Claire Gallagher, who had her eyes set on the next 100 miles up and over Hope Pass to Winfield and back to Leadville. At the start of the Leadville 100 six years prior, Gallagher was relatively unknown. 19 hours and 27 seconds later, she completed her first 100-mile race and won the 2016 Leadville 100 with the course's second-fastest female time. This win jump-started Gallagher's running career, which now includes sponsorship deals from Patagonia, La Sportiva, and Petzl. In the past six years, a slew of victories in world-class competitions, 2017 CCC, 100K in France, and the 2019 Western States 100 in California, has led some to place Gallagher among the goats of running. Earlier this year, Gallagher competed in the Black Canyon 100, a golden ticket race for the Western States 100. Gallagher went into Black Canyon knowing that if she won, she would refuse the ticket to the Western States 100, wanting to return to compete again in Leadville instead. Leadville is just this emotionally, historically charged place for me personally, Gallagher says. But then also, of course, in the sport itself, because it's one of the oldest 100 milers in the country. It revitalized this sleepy mining town. It's Colorado, the Sawatch Range, such a beautiful part of the world. Her coach, David Roche, calls the Western States 100 the Super Bowl of ultra running in the U.S., 
and she stuck with her decision to not race in the Western States 100, Roche says. People almost never stick with that decision, and it just shows that Claire has the type of character that she says what she means, and she means what she says. Gallagher went into this year's Leadville 100 as one of the favorites to win, along with longtime training partner Addie Bracey. Bracey had just come off a win at the Speedgoat 50k in July, and was the runner-up at Leadville in 2018. The two remained neck and neck throughout the first 60 milers, swapping the lead four times between aid stations. Just before returning to the Hope Pass aid station, Gallagher overtook Bracey and took off from there. Bracey, unfortunately, had to drop out at the 70-mile marker after feeling the same symptoms of rhabdomyolysis, a potentially fatal condition, at mile marker 60 that hospitalized her in February. On the Some Work All Play podcast, Gallagher revealed she threw up everything in her stomach at mile 75. She gave a lot of credit for her win to her pacer, Clint Anders, who kept the mood light and helped her replace those vital calories. You can't really feel sorry for yourself, Gallagher says. There's no time for that, especially at mile 75. It's a really pivotal time in the race. You still have a lot of miles to run, and so you have to stay focused. I had a really good pacer at that time, and he didn't give in. He didn't feel sorry for me. He just said, swish and spit, and gave me some water. And so, it just takes focus and discipline. With just under a marathon of miles left, Gallagher was able to find the fight within herself and put it all together to finish with a time of 19 hours, 37 minutes, 57 seconds, the fifth fastest female time in Leadville history. Roche explains that he uses the term earth-raging with Gallagher, who isn't driven by ego. When she is out in nature and is like, I'm here in this beautiful spot and through my body I'm celebrating this, that sort of internal justification is so much more sustainable than external validation that comes and goes, he says. And she wasn't chasing ego at all. She was just chasing love. Love of nature, love of running, you know. Love of the good shit, the bad shit. 36 hours after the race, Gallagher is back in Boulder, in class at the University of Colorado, where she is now pursuing her PhD under the guidance of Dr. Cassandra Brooks in the Department of Environmental Studies. Gallagher studied ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton and graduated in 2014. During the break between graduating from Princeton and going back to school at Boulder, Gallagher stayed committed to environmental justice. I think I have been an environmentalist at my core and in my heart, really, since I was a little girl, she says. At Cherry Creek High School, I was president of the recycling club, and we sold bracelets that said, Stop Global Warming. At Princeton, I was highly involved with a divestment campaign to divest the university's endowment from fossil fuels. Throughout her time as a Patagonia global sports activist, Gallagher has used her spotlight to highlight several environmental issues, including testifying in 2019 to the Bureau of Land Management against all oil leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Shortly after running across the Mojave Desert in Joshua Tree National Park, Gallagher received a phone call from fellow Patagonia athlete Tommy Caldwell, 
inviting her to Fort Yukon in Alaska to learn more about how climate change has affected the Gwich'in people, a tribe who has lived in the region for 20,000 years, according to some estimates. The catch was having to leave for Alaska for multiple weeks and return only a few days before the Western States 100, causing a significant break in her training schedule. For Gallagher, the decision was easy. She joined Caldwell and two other Patagonia athletes, Austin Siadak and Luke Nelson, in Alaska. In January 2021, newly elected President Joe Biden issued an executive order halting all drilling in the refuge, where the Gwich'in people live. In June of the same year, Biden suspended all oil drilling leases issued by the Trump administration. Gallagher believes she is better off moving on from an advocacy role and wants to work to influence policy more. For now, Gallagher says, I feel that being in science and potentially more closely related to the policy side is where I am meant to be. Gallagher said she plans on taking a few months to rest and get back into the swing of school, but she's already thinking about the next year of races. Why Outlawing Ghost Guns Didn't Stop America's Largest Maker of Ghost Gun Parts Unregistered, unserialized weapons produced with polymer-80 parts have turned up at crime scenes across the country, but state-level efforts to close ghost gun loopholes continue to fall short. By Anjanette Damon, ProPublica This story was originally published by ProPublica, co-published with the Baltimore Banner and Reno Gazette Journal. As Nevada lawmakers heard public comments last year on a bill to ban ghost guns and the parts used to make them, a resident of the rural town of Dayton called into the hearing to offer his opinion. The privately made firearms are virtually untraceable because they lack a serial number and can be easily purchased online and assembled by people who otherwise wouldn't be able to legally buy a gun. I do not care if this bill passes or not, said the man, who identified himself only as Lauren Kelly. I am just informing you that we as Americans just will not comply with it no matter what you do. What he didn't mention to the committee is that he owns a company called Polymer 80, one of the country's most prolific manufacturers of ghost gun kits and parts. His vow to defy such regulations is as much about principle as profit, even as thousands of untraceable guns bearing the P-80 stamp have turned up at crime scenes from Los Angeles to Baltimore. According to court documents, the vast majority of ghost guns recovered by law enforcement nationwide are built from polymer 80 parts. That's why Nevada lawmakers were debating the bill. Anti-gun violence advocates saw a unique opportunity to shut down the flow of ghost gun parts to the rest of the country by going after the source. You can say you can't possess an unserialized gun, but you need to be able to go up the supply chain if you want to stop the problem, said David Puccino, Deputy Chief Counsel for Giffords Law Center, who helped draft the Nevada legislation. Nevada's effort came as big city mayors across the country were beginning to grapple with an increase in crimes committed with polymer 80 guns. A handful of states had passed legislation restricting ghost guns, 
Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles had sued Polymer 80, claiming the company was selling a product that violated their local gun control laws. And an additional four cities had sued the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, seeking to compel the agency to require manufacturers like Polymer 80 to put serial numbers on core ghost gun components. Advocates viewed the Nevada law as potentially more effective tactic than the patchwork of efforts brought to bear so far. And it almost worked. The legislature passed Assembly Bill 286 on a party-line vote in May 2021. In seven months, when the new law took effect, Polymer 80 would be out of the ghost gun kit making business, at least in Nevada. But thanks to a strategically chosen court venue in rural Nevada, and with the help of the New York law firm Greenspoon Martyr, Polymer 80 won a decision vacating the section of law that would have halted its ghost gun business. While it is now illegal to assemble or possess a ghost gun in Nevada, it remains legal to possess and transport the components of a ghost gun. As a result, the parts that some use to evade gun control laws and others use to pursue their hobby of homemade gun making continue to flow from Polymer 80 to the rest of the country. Anti-gun violence advocates say their court defeat in Nevada underlines the weakness of a state-by-state -state approach to closing the ghost gun loophole. They also noted that the bipartisan federal gun bill signed into law in June in response to a spate of mass shootings does nothing to address the problem of ghost guns. The state-level laws are really important but can only go so far, Puccino said. Really, we need a federal solution. Kelly, who doesn't trust the news media, rarely talks to reporters, despite his company's increasingly high profile. But in an hour-long interview with ProPublica, Kelly described his remarks to lawmakers last year as political grandstanding and not a promise to break the ghost gun law. Still, it was a moment that portended Kelly's victory in court. I was pointing out a simple fact. You can do whatever you want, but it's not going to work, Kelly said. And I was proven to be right. But Polymer 80's victory in the Nevada court does not obviate the legal threat it faces elsewhere, including lawsuits from big city mayors trying to stem gun violence on their streets, and a pair of deputies ambushed in their patrol car by an assailant wielding a Polymer 80 ghost gun. It's a position that Kelly both relishes and resents. If it were up to him, he said, he'd focus on building his business and looking after his 50 or so employees. But he doesn't shy away from a fight over his principles. Polymer 80 is on the front lines of protecting the Second Amendment rights of all Americans right now, Kelly told ProPublica. That's not a brag. It's just the reality because we've become the whipping boy for emotionally driven government policy. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott is one of the city leaders who has sued Polymer 80. The lawsuit is intended to hold the company accountable for the street violence perpetrated by people using Polymer 80 kits to circumvent federal and state gun laws that require a background check to purchase a firearm and a license to own a handgun. Maryland law also prohibits the sale and manufacture of guns that aren't included on the state's handgun roster, which does not list those built with Polymer 80 parts. Scott said he first heard about ghost guns in 2018, 
when, as a city council member, he was chair of the Public Safety Committee. That year, law enforcement confiscated nine unserialized firearms. Within three years, police were confiscating hundreds of the illegal weapons annually. Once they arrived, they became a huge problem for us, Scott told ProPublica. They've been used in shootings, robberies, carjackings, murder. We're seeing them run the gamut. Baltimore police recently busted a ghost gun-making operation, arresting a man who had dozens of polymerity kits, Scott said. The man was a childhood friend of Scott's. But another incident made the issue even more personal for Scott. In January 2021, Dante Barksdale, an anti-violence activist beloved in Baltimore, was shot nine times with a polymer 80 ghost gun. He died in the courtyard of an apartment building where he had, a few weeks earlier, delivered winter coats to families who lived there. Dante was like a brother to me, Scott said. His death really impacts everything that I do in the realm of public safety. If he were here today, he's probably in the room with me right now, he would say, you gotta go after the gun companies too. The rise of ghost gun crimes on Baltimore streets coincides with the growth of Polymer 80's business. Kelly founded Polymer 80 in 2013 with his father, Lauren Kelly Sr., and their business partner, David Borges, who recently retired from the company. Kelly's father died in January. Polymer 80 got its start in Vacaville, California, but Nevada, with its low taxes and friendly regulatory environment, beckoned, and the company moved here a year later. In 2016, Polymer 80 became a licensed firearm manufacturer, allowing it to produce traditional firearms that comply with the Federal Gun Control Act. But the larger part of its business is the production of so-called unfinished frames, the lower part of a handgun, including the pistol grip and trigger guard, onto which the firing mechanism and related components are fitted. The company also makes unfinished receivers, the base component of a rifle, such as an AR-15. Federal law requires completed frames and receivers to be stamped with serial numbers. To avoid that requirement, Polymer 80 designed unfinished frames, which are about 80% complete. The frame and remaining components can be easily assembled into a functioning firearm. In 2015, Polymer 80 began sending samples of its unfinished frames to the ATF, which agreed the part did not require a serial number. Our strategy always has been to be very open and candid with the ATF and the government, Kelly said. We've always been proactive with sending the ATF information on our products, and we just operate above board. Business took off. Between January 2019 and October 2020, for example, Polymer 80 shipped nearly 52,000 items to customers across the country, according to court documents. But as Polymer 80 grew, so did the number of privately assembled firearms police were recovering at crime scenes. Just as Baltimore experienced an increase in ghost gun recoveries starting in 2016, so too did Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Nationally, according to ATF published numbers, the number of ghost guns recovered by law enforcement jumped to 19,344 in 2021, from 1,758 in 2016. The vast majority of those guns were assembled with Polymer 80 parts, according to court documents. 
Ghost guns haven't been involved in the latest high-profile mass shootings, such as in Uvalde, Texas, Highland Park, Illinois, or Buffalo, New York, which each involved legally obtained AR-15-style weapons. But mayors in the cities that have either sued Polymer 80 or asked the ATF to close its ghost gun loophole, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Los Angeles, New York, argue they're increasingly common in street violence. Ghost guns have been used in school shootings by teenagers too young to legally buy firearms in New Mexico, Arizona, Maryland, and California. In 2020, two Los Angeles County deputies sitting in their patrol car were shot, one in the face, one in the arm, by a man with a ghost gun. Both survived but sustained grievous injuries. A lawsuit they filed against Polymer 80 is pending in Los Angeles County Superior Court, as is the lawsuit filed by the City of Los Angeles on behalf of the people of California. Although the ATF gave Polymer 80 the go-ahead to sell unfinished frames without serial numbers, the company started to market a kit called Buy, Build, Shoot that included both the unfinished frame and other parts needed to quickly assemble a complete firearm. The ATF never gave Polymer 80 explicit approval to sell these complete kits without complying with serial number and background check requirements. Puccino, the deputy chief counsel for Giffords Law Center, said Polymer 80 is exploiting loopholes to enable its customers to evade gun control laws, including age requirements for gun purchases. Their whole business model, which makes them different from, say, Glock, is they evade restrictions, he said. In late 2020, investigators with the ATF concluded that Polymer 80's kits likely violated the Federal Gun Control Act and launched a raid on the Dayton manufacturing plant in December 2020. According to the search warrant affidavit, investigators found evidence Polymer 80 shipped gun parts to individuals whose criminal backgrounds prohibit them from owning firearms and to individuals in foreign countries. Polymer 80's website previously said the company has a strict policy against selling 80% lower receivers to persons known to us to be convicted felons or otherwise prohibited persons. That language was recently removed. Although the affidavit was made public, the federal court has resealed the case, meaning the results of the raid and any subsequent actions aren't public. ATF spokesperson Ginger Colburn said she couldn't comment on the case because the investigation remains active. Kelly wouldn't commit on the specifics of the ATF investigation, but he pointed to the fact that no one from his company has been arrested following the raid as an indication that Polymer 80 hasn't broken the law. We are still talking to them about that, he said. We have a positive set of conversations going on. Kelly vehemently disagrees with the assertion that his company tries to exploit loopholes, saying the company does nothing but comply with the law. He describes his customers as hobbyists and homemade gun enthusiasts, engaging in a centuries-old practice of building their own firearms. Polymer 80 has always been a law-abiding company and always will be, he said, noting it hasn't sold any ghost gun parts to Nevadans since the 2021 law, which still prohibits possessing a complete ghost gun. What's going on is people in power realizing people have always had a right to do this, and they don't like it. Polymer 80 wants to succeed through legal means, Kelly said. 
That wouldn't be possible if all his customers were criminals. It would be a really, really stupid business model to cater specifically to criminals, and I would find such a practice to be deplorable, he said. It's not hobbyists using polymer 80 guns on the streets of Baltimore, Scott said. That is the most ludicrous thing and ridiculous thing I've ever heard, Scott said. Their business model explicitly targets purchasers seeking to evade law enforcement or who can't obtain a gun from a licensed dealer. After the 2021 ghost law passed in Nevada, Polymer 80 hired the New York City law firm Greenspoon Martyr to file the lawsuit in Yarrington, an onion farming town that's the seat of the county that's home to Polymer 80. One of the firm's managing partners, James McGuire, traveled to Yarrington to argue before Judge John Schlegelmilch that the law was written so vaguely it would be impossible to enforce and would be ripe for abuse. McGuire said in an email he no longer represents Polymer 80 and referred questions to another lawyer at the firm who didn't respond to questions for comment. In court, McGuire argued the law failed to define key terms such as receiver and frame, and used murky and undefined terms to explain what an unfinished receiver is. He also argued the law doesn't specify when in the manufacturing process an unfinished receiver actually becomes a receiver. During two hearings on the lawsuit, Schlegelmich seemed to have little patience with the state's argument that the law relies on industry-specific terms that are well understood by Polymer 80. Instead, the judge agreed with McGuire that the law didn't adequately define an unfinished receiver. At one point, he asked whether his five-year-old's rubber band gun could be considered an unfinished receiver simply because it looks like a gun. What if I'm at home and I'm machining a piece of wood, okay, and my five-year-old wants a rubber band gun, okay? So I take that piece of wood, I turn it, I make it into, you know, I take a bandsaw, and I cut out what looks like a firearm, and I put a couple of sticks on it so that you can put a rubber band on it when you push it up. You've seen a rubber band gun before, right? So is that mostly completed? I mean, a rubber band gun's not a firearm, responded the state's attorney, Greg Zunino. I don't think you would ever be prosecuted under that scenario, because you still have to have an intent to turn something into a firearm. Schlegelmilch ruled in favor of Polymer 80 and enjoined the state from enforcing the section of the law that prohibited the possession and sale of unfinished frames and receivers. Schlegelmilch let stand the rest of the law, which Polymer 80 didn't challenge and prohibits the possession of a completed ghost gun. The state has appealed Schlegelmilch's ruling to the Nevada Supreme Court. Schlegelmilch declined an interview request because the appeal is pending. Kelly declined to comment on the decision to file the lawsuit on his home turf in Lyon County. Other courts have ruled differently. A similar lawsuit in federal court in Reno the same month was quickly tossed by a judge who decided the law is a valid exercise of the government's police power. What happened here, with the state court being more successful for them, indicates politics and ideology within the judiciary, Puccino said. This month, a judge in Washington, D.C. found Polymer 80 sold illegal firearms in the district and ordered it to pay $4 million in penalties. The ATF is also seeking to impose a new rule that would require unfinished receivers and frames to include a serial number, 
one of the federal strategies that Puccino said would be more effective than a state-by-state -state approach. The new rule, seen as a way to close the ghost gun loophole, is set to take effect on August 24th, but it faces at least three lawsuits from the ghost gun industry seeking to block its implementation. McGuire, the lawyer who represented Polymer 80, authored a 27-page public comment submission on the new rule, arguing in part that it's impermissibly vague, the same argument that he used successfully to stop the Nevada law. To some, there is an easy solution. Polymer 80 could stamp serial numbers on the unfinished frames and receivers they sell. Kelly said putting a serial number on his products wouldn't hurt his company, but using those numbers to require background checks is a critical threat to his business, which he said relies on a growing market of individuals who value their Fourth Amendment's rights to privacy. There's a problem when people's right to privacy is infringed, and a government agency is looking at what you bought whenever they want, he said. Shear Zone Marina Cassianidou's Geometric Frustrations is an Exploration of Resilience and Futility by Caitlin Rocket Wandering aimlessly about the internet in the early lockdown days of the pandemic, Marina Cassianidou stumbled onto some research out of Harvard that proves there's a mathematical pattern to the way paper crumples. Every time you apply pressure, the paper tries to retain its material integrity on molecular level, she explains. I was thinking of it as agency, the amount of agency that the paper has in terms of protecting itself. Cassianidou likes to think about things like this about the logarithmic folds of crinkled paper and the language of computers. How to think like the machine a little bit, she says with a lilting laugh, and how things work with bits and bytes and memory registers and whatnot. The Cypress native studied both studio art and computer science at Stanford on a Fulbright scholarship before moving on to advanced degrees in fine art. One of the things that I really enjoyed in computer science was when we were using a programming language that allowed me to intervene directly in the very low-level electronics of the computer, and interface directly in individual memory registers, she says. I think that translates in some ways into the kind of art I'm making, which also deals with the very basics of mark-making, and working with a surface and learning its language almost, and then responding to that. In Geometric Frustrations, now showing at East Window, 4949 Broadway, through October 28th, Cassia Nidu responds to the surface of a crumpled log graph paper, lightly tracing lines along the creases that form, recording the structural changes of the paper. The paper, which one of Cassia Nidu's art students at CU Boulder found in the trash, was printed by the U.S. Department of the Interior Geological Survey Water Resources Division, most likely to record water discharging in reverse. Its logarithmic scale, with lines that run close together, then further apart, then closer together, over and over, can be used to record data over tens or even hundreds of years. Cassianidu shifts the recording process from the external fluctuations of the Earth to the internal struggle of the paper. But in the process, the paper turns into its own terrain, she says. The reason they're displayed horizontally in the gallery is to have that relationship to the ground that you're standing on. So they do become this quasi-representation of the earth 
and how we attempt to make sense of the Earth. And part of the way we try to do that is by collecting data and creating graphs and trying to make sense of what's happening around us in the geology and topography. So I see them as this attempt to try and make sense of space and place, sometimes futile attempts. It would seem there's nothing humans love more than futile attempts to make sense of the world, often shoving one another into proverbial boxes by drawing imaginary lines on maps to delineate who owns what and who belongs where. It would be easy to overlay Castanidu's native Cyprus on this concept, where British rule in the previous century sowed dissent among Greek and Turkish Cypriots that exists today, resulting in a country divided. But for a long time, Castanidu refused to see the connection between her home and her art. So when people like a local journalist, for example, would ask if her art was a representation of the so-called Cyprus problem, Castanidu was almost offended. Looking back, it is a very traumatic history that the island has lived through, and that trauma is still around, she says. Friends of my parents were refugees, so they remember being little and being thrown out of their homes and living through the war situation. It's so heavy and so traumatic. Maybe I just didn't feel that I could do justice to it in some way. But there's another interpretation of Cassianidu's art. In a response to geometric frustrations, filmmaker Aaron Aspelli compares the artist's work to the topography of the foothills that surround Boulder, where deep rock scars known as shear zones have formed over millennia of pressure, where the Earth's crust has sustained extreme internal stress. What shear zones offer in metaphor, Aspelli writes, is their ability to negotiate stress by changing position, sometimes subtly and other times radically. Cassianidu's geometric frustrations brought me into the state of contemplation, Espelli muses, a recognition that I sit upon a shear zone, a scarred site that can absorb stresses, high strain, and move but not break in response to where two very different strata meet. We are in a place that allows for repeated change, vulnerability, resilience, and reformation. We may wish to dispose of our past failures quickly, yet to regard our stressful collective collapses with careful intensity, as Cassianidu does, may offer insight for the future. Perhaps there's a mathematical pattern to the way humans fold as well. On the bill, Geometric Frustrations is showing at East Window, 4949 Broadway, Boulder, through October 28th. The Upswing Always Comes the War on Drugs Make Their Red Rocks Debut on September 19th by Angela K. Evans Adam Granduciel is restless. Every day, the 40-year-old lead guitarist and vocalist for The War on Drugs wakes up buzzing with the urge to accomplish a million things, spend time with his kid, maybe play a couple hours of tennis or a round of golf, and then get into the studio to write a new song. Restlessness is just a part of living, he says. These themes that we write about, that we find comfort in, that we are compelled to express in music, are things that we can't escape from. They're a huge part of my life. That restlessness can be productive, as evidenced by the War on Drugs' critically acclaimed five-album discography. But it can also teeter into darker places. 
Granduccio says it's all part of the fabric of life that becomes more intricate with age. You're never healed or cured from any sort of anxiety, depression, restlessness, whatever, he says. You just incorporate it into your life as you get older. Having gotten their start in the early aughts, Granduccio and the War on Drugs have had decades to incorporate such familiar feelings into their lives and music. But there is a first time for everything, including an inaugural stop at Red Rocks on September 19th. Calling it a rite of passage, Granduccio says performing at the storied Colorado Amphitheater may even top selling out Madison Square Garden earlier this year. It's a culmination of years of friendship and touring, with each member coming into their own to help the band build a reputation for arena-filling live shows many touring acts can only dream of. The live thing, especially, is a direct result of who we have up there and what everyone's become, Granduccio says. The band just keeps getting better. It's been a really nice evolution of how the records get made, and then how they get interpreted on a stage in front of a lot of people. The band's current lineup consists of six members who came together for the band's 2014 breakthrough album, Lost in the Dream. David Hartley, bass, Robbie Bennett, keyboards, Charlie Hall, drums, John Natchez, saxophone, keyboards, Anthony LaMarca, guitar, plus Eliza Hardy-Jones, whom Granduccio knows from the tight-knit indie rock scene of Philadelphia. Fifteen years ago, I would not have thought we'd be a seven-piece band with this many keyboards and everything, Granduccio says. It's been able to evolve, and there's a little mystery to it, and we can be whatever you want it to be. Sitting in the Uncertainty Fifteen years ago, Granduccio spent his days playing music with his friends in the Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia creating what will become the War on Drugs with good friend-turned-solo artist Kurt Vile. Together, they released the band's first album, Wagon Wheel Blues, in 2008. The pair bonded over a love of Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, two influences woven throughout the War on Drugs canon. Such foundational artists offer insight into the band's generation-spanning appeal. Reflecting on the band's early history, Granduccio says it all seemed to happen in a vacuum. There were shows most nights, with bands forming just as frequently, populated by an array of musicians hanging out at parties, jamming and listening to music together. You experienced culture on a very micro level, he says, of those pre-social media days, and it just felt innocent or something. I don't know what it's like to be doing that now. Granduccio comes back to a sense of gratitude about those years he spent learning about music, writing and recording with neighborhood friends, before selling out the larger-than-life arenas and stadiums where the war on drugs could come to feel at home. While the live show has evolved in its own way, so has the process of recording. It's not so much a matter of translating the stage performance into the studio, Granduccio says, Instead, it's more about expressing the unique musicality and personality of each member of the band. But as the lyricist and main songwriter, Granduccio says producing albums is still a tortured process, even after all this time. The group's fifth record last year's I Don't Live Here Anymore took three and a half years to complete. Never feeling satisfied is the momentum behind the craft. There's no cure for wanting to keep uncovering new songs, he says. Nothing can sway you from making your art. 
Lately, Granduccio has been tinkering around with some new ideas, but at this point he's unsure of what it will turn into. Each record, perhaps even each song, is a mixture of exacting precision and some scrappy improv, as Granduccio is known to finish lyrics in the studio at the last minute. Sometimes, he says, a song just reveals itself, but most of the time he sits in the uncertainty of where a song will end up. It's all part of the cycle, the art of making a record, he says. It starts on top of the world, with excitement building around a new concept, before inevitably crashing into insecurity and doubt. That's usually followed by a lull in which Granduccio questions everything he's created so far. But the upswing always comes. I think that at the end of the day, when I sit down and listen back to something I've been working on and it hits a nerve with me, it's usually because there's something in there that I know to be true, he says. And that feels like something I want to be singing about. In that moment, Granduccio knows he'll eventually get back to the place of pride in what he's created. A place of calm before the next day comes, and the process starts all over again. Sausage City. Plant-based boulder supplies an impressive international variety of fresh links for the grill. By John Lendorf. Chorizo, Anduil, Merguez, Kielbasa, Chipolata, Bangers, Budin. They're all made here, along with hot Italian, Polish, German, and breakfast links. For a city so closely identified with tofu, Boulder is a bastion of great fresh sausages of all varieties. Once I started looking for fresh links, I found them all over town and throughout Boulder County. There are also a lot of companies making pre-cooked heat-and-eat sausages, such as Denver's Charcut Nouveau. But to my taste buds, that's a different and lesser experience. Fresh is always best. Local supermarkets all make sausage and sell popular locally made brands like Boulder Sausage, a descendant to the legendary Don's Sausage, alongside longtime Denver faves like Canino's and Polidori. Louisville's strong Italian heritage accounts for its long sausage-making history. Old-style sausage has been crafting everything from standard hot Italian bulk to cilantro and green chili links since 1972. Around town, there are meat masters stuffing truly hard-to-find varieties beside the usual suspects. For instance, Black Belly Market's meat counter has served Wagyu beef hot dogs, British bangers, Filipino longanista, chorizo verde, Toulouse sausages, and Cajun andouille. Le Frigo, Boulder's French deli, offers links from Goody's, a Denver maker specializing in mainly European varieties, ranging from chipolatas, the French hot dog, and lamb-based merguez, to Toulouse bacon links, Basque, and even African Boer Wars sausage. Kuji Foods, Boulder's new South American food market, stocks rare, fresh frozen varieties imported from Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and Colombia. My search led me to a source on the eastern edge of Lafayette, Arapaho meat, which is known for stuffing casings with a taste-tingling rainbow of unusual and fun bratwurst variations. Have you ever tasted gyro, ancho chile, blueberry, and white cheddar? chicken bacon ranch or pumpkin spice brats? 
Don't miss Arapaho's maple bacon blueberry breakfast links. Longmont is a hotbed of sausage creativity. Mexican carnicerias are making spicy chorizo while my butcher, Frank, fills its counter with a changing selection of Italian, German, and Polish sausage. Buttermilk bratwurst and other varieties. Longmont's Sky Pilot Farm sustainably raises the animals that become artisan breakfast sausage, Cajun andouille, Thai lemongrass links, and spicy lamb merguez. Most delicious of all is Moulet's Sausage, a Longmont company focused on making sausage that meets the highest standards. They use humanely raised meat that is certified free of nine food allergens with no sugar, nitrates, preservatives, grains, legumes, fillers, or antibiotics. My favorites are Moulet's British Bangers and Nana's Italian Sausage, which cook up ideally, crisp skin, juicy inside, and bursting with flavors. Moulet's links are available fresh frozen at natural grocers and other natural foods markets. Fall has always been a huge sausage season, what with tailgating and Oktoberfest celebrations. It's the right time to gather family and friends around your grill to sample the local varieties at a backyard sausage tasting party with appropriate condiments and sides. Great sausages deserve to be cooked properly. Moulet's Sausage offers how-to tips that reflect the instructions top meat counters share with their customers. If you're cooking sausage on top of the stove, put half an inch of water and one tablespoon vegetable or olive oil in a small frying pan. Simmer covered over medium heat until the water is gone. Then take off the top and cook sausage until browned. To grill, place sausages on a hot grill, but not over direct flame. Don't char the links or they will burst and you'll lose all the juice and flavor built up inside that casing. Turn sausages after about five minutes or until the side is browned and cook until done. For additional flavor, place links in your smoker first and then grill. Inexpensive, ready-to-cook, versatile, and pre-seasoned sausages also make environmental sense because it allows the less appealing but still perfectly tasty bits of animals to be turned into something we love to eat instead of being wasted. Local food news. Best out east. Make your reservations ASAP for Boulder County's first bite, September 30th to October 9th. Participating eateries offering deals include 740 Front, Basta, Boulder Social, Brasserie 1010, Frank's Chop House, Gemini, Marigold, and Suti and Company, firstbiteboulder.com. Make sure you vote by September 24th for your favorite restaurants and food businesses in Louisville, Lafayette, Longmont, and beyond in the 2022 Best of Boulder East County Survey. Survey at boulderweekly.com. The Nibbles Index, Cost Confusion. 29. The percentage of American consumers who think it is cheaper to order restaurant food instead of buying the ingredients to cook a meal. About 71% of us strongly disagree. Source, National 2022 Pop Menu Survey. The good your $750 can do. The check really is in the mail. The Colorado Department of Revenue is refunding $750 to each individual resident taxpayer and $1,500 to joint filers. Before that money disappears into bill paying, consider investing some or all of it in something that pays big dividends. 
No, not Bitcoin, NFTs, but feeding kids, seniors, and neighbors who barely survived the pandemic financially and now face high food prices. Most of the many Boulder County food assistance organizations are helping many more families now and need your help. Give some of your Colorado cash back bucks to Boulder Food Rescue, boulderfoodrescue.org, Community Food Share, communityfoodshare.org, Emergency Family Assistance Association, Boulder, efaa.org, Our Center, Longmont, ourcenter.org, Harvest of Hope, Boulder, hopepantry.org, and Sister Carmen Community Center, Lafayette, sistercarmen.org. Words to chew on. If you're going to bang an animal on the head, it's only polite to eat it all. Fergus Henderson. John Lendorf is the grandson of a Sicilian sausage maker. He hosts Radio Nibbles Thursdays on KGNU, 88.5 FM, streaming at KGNU.org. Punch Your Way Into the Party A new coming-of-age memoir by Denver author Gogo Germain explores punk rock and gender politics on the front range by Nick Hutchinson. Author Erin K. Barnes, who writes under the pen name Gogo Germain, calls herself a pretty typical Coloradan. But the adolescent at the center of her new book, Glory Guitars, Memoir of a 90s Teenage Punk Rock Girl, is anything but run-of-the-mill. Barnes, whose sophomore literary release arrives via University of Hell Press on October 11th, says she didn't fit the good girl mold that was expected of young women in the suburban Fort Collins neighborhood of her youth. That's when she discovered the riot girl scene, a feminist subgenre of punk marked by ferocious guitars, breakneck drums, and a healthy dose of gender politics. From a young age, I was considered a weirdo for liking punk music and not being into the usual girl stuff. I liked to read Lester Bangs and play the drums, Barnes says. In polite Fort Collins, suburbia, people look at you if you're wearing black and chains like you're troubled. That sense of not fitting in courses through Barnes' feedback-drenched memoir. The 39-year-old author calls it a story of punk rebellion, drawing from her own coming-of-age experience on the Northern Front Range with a squad of precocious teen punk girls who did whatever we wanted to do. Of course, it didn't take long for Barnes to find her way from Fort Collins to Boulder and its well-worn history of counterculture. She followed her sister, who moved to town to attend CU Boulder. I basically lived with her and partied while she went to college, Barnes remembers before pursuing her own degree in writing at Metro State University in Denver. I loved being in the city and riding the bus around Capitol Hill and reading Jack Kerouac and all that good stuff, she remembers those early days in the Metro Southward childhood home. But the change of scenery offered Barnes more than a chance to catch up on her favorite beat writers. With some space to reflect on her own punk rock youth, Barnes arrived at a lesson for navigating conformity that animates her new memoir. Someone who looks troubled to you doesn't need to be diagnosed or psychoanalyzed, she says. Maybe there's something wrong with society, which we know there is. The feeling of rebellion. When it comes to the origins of her discontent, Barnes points to a formative memory of ditching school in junior high. The simple act of cutting class and running with abandon through a nearby field proved to be a defining experience for the emerging author. 
I became bewitched by this simple memory, she says. I wanted to capture the feeling of rebellion, and that memory from my past sort of gave rise to the book. Within the pages of Glory Guitars, many readers will recognize that longing for independence and individualism, whether or not they share Barnes' particular punk rock life experiences. Glory Guitars is a chronicle of misadventure, she says. It's that feeling of stealing a cigarette from your dad and going into a field with your friends to share it. But despite its universal themes, the highly specific world of the 90s Fort Collins punk scene looms large in Barnes' new memoir. The self-described elder millennial says the accessible, angst-driven genre gave her and her friends a voice in a world dominated by men. The best thing about it is that you just kind of punch your way into the party, Barnes says. I think punk is essential to female liberation. In the current day, I think we need more of that. That punk sensibility is clear from the cover of Glory Guitars, which features photos from Barnes' youth collaged into an approximation of a concert flyer by designer Joel Amatguel. Taking the concept a step further, the book comes in a variety of bright day-glow colors from Portland, Oregon-based publisher University of Hell. But despite the slapdash style resembling the DIY aesthetics of the music at its heart, Barnes' memoir represents the culmination of plenty of hard work. She hopes the final result will offer hope to others who feel out of place. I wrote the first draft in about a week, and then I spent a year refining it, she says. There's a lot of hopelessness in the world these days, and I wanted the book to be a kick in the face, full of energy and rebellion and fun. As for its title, Glory Guitars is lifted from a passage in the text that reflects the author's take on the freedom of her youth and the music that moved her. It came from my view of a romanticized adolescence, a wash in glory guitars, she says. I'm forced to reckon with the dark and light things that have happened in my life, and the book is about embracing both. Glory Guitars, a memoir of a 90s teenage punk rock girl, University of Hell Press, is available for pre-order ahead of its October 11th release at universityofhellpress.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.